So much of what we do each and every day is to try to earn our own standing, to declare our own sufficiency. And yet what we learn from you and from the reality of life is that we cannot do it on our own. That apart from you, we can do nothing. And so in this moment, God, we don't declare our independence. We declare our dependence upon you, how much we need you. And so be true to your word and help us to be faithful to your promises. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. There's an author by the name of Susie Becker who decided to write a really interesting little book called The All Better Book, where she talked about the different kind of problems that we face in the world, but instead of just writing them from like an adult's perspective, she invited children to kind of help give feedback on how to handle these weighty problems. So how do you deal with anger or how do you um, quit smoking or how do you break an addiction or how do you stop being afraid? What do we do about the environment? All these different kinds of questions she invited the children into and she solicited their advice. And one of the issues in the book that she tackles is she says this, with billions and billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a system where no one is lonely. And let's see some of the responses. This is Kalani, age eight. People should find lonely people and ask them their name and address. And then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. <laughs> this girl has a clear career in management in the future, and I'm just impressed she knows what a newspaper is at that, at that age. Next one here, Max, age nine, make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? This guy's clearly going to work for Disney when he grows up and work in animated films. Next one here, Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet husband or a pet wife and take them places. You got to wonder what Matt really kind of thinks about marriage and what he's learned for, from those kinds of things. But my personal favorite is this, Brian, age eight. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. With billions and billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a system where no one is lonely. Did you know that in one generation, the number of people that report being lonely has doubled in the last generation? That people are experiencing higher degrees of isolation and friendlessness than ever before. This is an image from the New York Times of George Bell's apartment. And George Bell died like a growing number of people without anyone noticing. Died in his apartment. Died with no one around him. Died all alone. One of the public officials who specializes in this kind of work in New York City said this, you can die in such anonymity in New York. We've had instances of people dead for months. No one finds them. No one misses them. With billions and billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a system where no one is lonely. Well, I believe that someone has. It's called community. And God's the one who created it. 
Now, maybe you're the kind of person that wouldn't classify yourself, especially with the stigma. I mean, psychologists have done a good job of people being more open to being able to say, I'm depressed or I'm anxious, and there's not the same stigma that comes with that. But it's not true with loneliness or friendlessness. But maybe you're not the kind of person that would be like, man, I'm, I'm not lonely or along those lines, but maybe this is your experience of what community looks like. Is this real community? This is what a social scientist by the name of Sherry Turkle calls alone together. They're together, but alone. Because it's easier and it's less risky to hide behind a screen, even if you're in a close proximity with somebody else. I mean, we've just finished the holidays, and we know that families can be the place that bring us our highest and greatest joy, and then sometimes the people who know us the best are the people who hurt us the most. Maybe you've gotten back from extended family time over the holidays, and that's all the gospel that you need to hear, that you're not alone in that. (laughs) And so I believe that all of us need some work on what it means to get close. And so we're entitling this series, Getting Close, and we're finding connections in an age of destruction. And how we're going to walk through this is we're going to walk through certain parts of kind of the founding chapters of the Bible, and we're going to look at that through the lens of how God cultivates a a sense of community and intimacy. And so we're going to walk through some of the book of Genesis. We're going to talk this week about the need to connect and attachment in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to talk about inviting connections, destroying connections, deepening connections, what it means to repair connections. So these different topics of attachment, vulnerability, comparison, commitment, and peace, hopefully, no matter how lonely you might feel, we're all going to learn what it means to get close and to be able to do that practically and to be able to do so with not just sound science, but also with good biblical wisdom. And so if you will turn with me in your Bibles, grab one that we've provided for you to use in the pew rack in front of you or the one that you have brought with you. And it's a good thing in the new year to consider bringing your Bible to church because you can underline in it. You can underline in the one that's in the pew rack in front of you, but people will look at you funny because it's the church's Bible. Um, But we would love for you to join us and to explore God's Word together to see this for yourself. This is Genesis chapter 2. And what's remarkable in the first opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God starts out by separating things but he separates them in order to bind them together. God creates uniqueness and distinctiveness. He's not looking for sameness. And then he creates those separations in order to be able to unite in love. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave name to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. We need to pause right there for a moment. My wife says that this is biblical proof positive that God does some of his best work when men are sleeping. (laughs) And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. 
And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was empty, it was void. Darkness covered everything, and the Spirit of God hovered over everything, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And over the course of the first eras, the first days, as is portrayed in the Bible, God separates these things. He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the sky from the sea. He separates the land from the water. And each day, God declares, and it was good, it was good, it was good. It's an epic poem. Did you realize that Genesis chapter 1 starts out as this beautiful song, this beautiful anthem of worship to the Creator God? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then by the time you get to human beings being created, God doesn't just declare it was good. He declares it was very good. And then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 2, all of a sudden we find out that something's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. It's remarkable to me that this happens in Genesis chapter 2 because we haven't gotten to Genesis chapter 3 yet. In Genesis chapter 3, that's when we learn about sin and evil and our rebellious nature of wanting to be our own gods, wanting to be in charge for ourselves, wanting to be able to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. That there's something that's not good in the Garden of Eden. And what is not good, because it's not the way that God designed it, is that you and I were never meant to be isolated from one another. The life was meant to be shared. It was meant to be cherished together. And so God's method of demonstrating this is that he is going to provide for the man what is known. And it says this multiple times, that he is going to provide a suitable helper. And I need to describe these words because there's a lot of people that really misunderstand what this means. The word suitable in the original language means both equal and adequate. And the word helper, more often in the Old Testament, 16 out of the 19 times that the word helper is used in the Old Testament, it's in reference to God. And so if you are reading Genesis chapter 2, and somewhere in your own like history, your own psyche, you're reading it, and you read suitable helper, that's a second-class citizen that women are to men, you are misreading the text. This is not political correctness. It's what it says. That the suitable helper is an equal and adequate helping in the same way that God helps us. And so the imagery is of God pulling from the side. This is the original design of creation, that we were developed for a partnership. We were created for community. And yes, in the strictest sense of what's here, this is primarily talking about the gift of marriage. But there's also a broader interpretation of what happens in Genesis chapter 2, that we were created for companionship and friendship and partnership that we were created to have this kind of community. 
And one of the things that I love about the details in this text is that the narrator keeps referring to Adam as Adam, which is a word that means like from the ground. It's a very earthy word. And then what happens in this text, once Adam meets Eve, his first reaction is, whoa, that's not an aardvark. That's different. And then did you notice he's like, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And and in doing so, what's interesting, God gives man the power to name, and now man changes his name in relationship to the woman that he has met. Before, it's all Adam, 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 Adam. And now he says, and she shall be called woman, and I am man. Adam redefines himself in relationship to his wife. Over the course of this series, we're going to be talking about all different kinds of relationships. We'll be talking about marriages at times. We'll be talking about friendships at different times. We'll be talking about working relationships. In this series, we're talking about getting close, and all of this applies to all of the different kinds of relationships that we have. But the most remarkable part of this that I don't want you to miss in Genesis chapter 2 is that when it says that notice that God creates Eve and he doesn't do so out of the head, out of the feet, but out of the side, this kind of unique, equal, and adequate partnership between the two of them, that one of the things that he does is he takes, uh, he takes Adam's rib. Very intentional language here. This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that the word, where the word for rib will be used to describe human anatomy. And that the rest of the time in the Hebrew Bible, the word rib is a term that refers to sacred architecture. In other words, for the rest of the Bible, it's talking about the temple. Constructing a place where God's presence uniquely dwells. And so we see some incredible foreshadowing here that what's being developed here, yes, in the gift of marriage, but also more broadly in the gift of friendship and community, is that that's actually sacred architecture, that the relationships that we have are actually places where God's presence dwells with us, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them, Jesus declares. That God isn't going to be confined to a building, that he's going to dwell in and among us. I was trying to find some really good inspirational art to kind of depict this Adam rib stuff, and this is the best thing that I could find on the internet. (laughs) Sometimes Legos say it best, that God takes the rib, this sacred architecture, and creates human flourishing and community. In short, it's, it's like this. You were hatched to attach. God created you to connect. And in the course of these series of messages, we're going to be talking about a pretty big word that's called intimacy. And I love the way that John Orberg describes and defines intimacy. He gets it from Dallas Willard. And he says, intimacy is shared experience that creates meaningful connections. It's a shared experience. Um, One single experience may not amount to a whole lot, but you add enough single experiences, John says, and you can, they're almost like musical notes. One note doesn't get you very far, but you add enough notes together, you can make a symphony. 
but they're shared experiences that create meaningful connections. We had a staff meeting this week, and I asked the staff to go around and to, to share a moment that was meaningful for them. And then I asked them the question, I said, raise your hand if your meaningful moment that you described around your tables, raise your hand if that meaningful moment was at least with one other person who was present. And almost virtually every hand in the room goes up. Life was meant to be shared. Comedies are funnier when you're watching them with friends. It's more fun to cheer for a football game whether you're in the stadium and you invite your pastor to go to the national championship game, <laughs> or at least in community of your home. And some of you need to invite other people to be with you when you're in front of the TV set, and you need to do so in Christian community because that way you don't swear as much as the TV. You need accountability and community in those moments right there. Shared experiences that create meaningful connections. That's what we were designed for. Regardless of how you were raised, regardless of how clean or messy your family system was, we go back all the way to the beginning. This is what you were made for. There's a wonderful movie, I don't know if you've seen it, that's called Gifted, and it's the story of a seven-year-old girl by the name of Mary, and Mary is a math prodigy. She is a genius, and she lives with her uncle Frank, and her uncle Frank is absolutely committed to trying to give Mary as bright as she is, as normal of a childhood as he can muster. And part of the reason that he does so is because his sister Diane, who was the mother to Mary, took her own life, and he was convinced that she did so in part because she was pushed too hard as a child because she was so gifted. Evelyn is the grandmother of Mary, and she has a very different perspective on how Mary ought to be raised. And Evelyn thinks that, like Diane, that this is a gift that needs to be cultivated and pushed because it could be a remarkable life. And so they end up in this custody battle, and in the midst of the custody battle, not only does Mary learn about the tragedy that befell her mother, but she also learns the shocking realization that her dad has lived in the community for a long time and that he never reached out to her, that he never once called her, that he never once sought her out to see what she might be like. And little seven-year-old Mary ends up in this emotional tailspin she questions why she was even alive. And Uncle Frank comes up with an idea to try to help remind her who she is and how it all started. And so he drags Mary and their neighbor to the hospital. And they sit in the waiting room. And she's like, what are we waiting for? What are we doing here? And he goes, you'll know when you see it. And this 
is what happened next. exactly how it happened when you were born. Regardless of your family of origin, that you were a child of God, and the heavens cheered and the angels sang at your birth, that you were hatched to attach. You were created to be in relationship with others and in relationship with God. You were never meant to live like this. You were meant to live like this. You were never meant to live alone in a place like this. You were meant to live up close like this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. For now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even, even as I have been fully known. 
You have union with God. You are his child. That is an empirical theological fact. No one can change that. But what's also amazing is that he has not just designed you for union with him, he has designed you for communion with him. One is an objective reality, the other is a subjective experience. You were designed to be able to experience the love and the joy and the peace and the patience of what it means to be in fellowship with God. Union and communion that compels us to live in community. That's what you were made for. And it's really, really good. Let's pray. God, you made us for a purpose, and that is to belong to one another and to you. Thank you that you declare your creation good, that you don't make mistakes, that we are your beloved children. Lord, forgive us for making that incredibly complicated and messy and how with the gift of marriage and family and relationships, we often take what is your beautiful design and we make it something that hurts really bad. I pray in this moment that you will unite us at this table, that you will help us to experience communion with you, and then you will propel us to experience the community with others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.